Welcome to Grand Challenges from Nature. Grand Challenges is our new roundtable series in which a panel of experts take on the biggest challenges facing society and ask what scientists, governments, charities, even you and I should be doing to try and solve them. I'm Kerry Smith and this episode is about mental health. In many countries, psychiatrists are a very rare species. In India, for example, in 2014, there was one psychiatrist for every 300,000 people. Vikram Patel, a psychiatrist himself, knows that this is a real bottleneck. People uh, with mental health problems are found in communities in every part of the world. Uh, We have evidence-based interventions for a wide range of mental health problems. But what we don't have, he says, is mental health professionals to deliver this care, provide the therapy or even prescribe the drugs. In South India, his team has been training regular members of the community to deliver mental health treatments. They train them using online resources and videos. So the main objective of this exercise is to see what are the times and the activities that make you feel better and what are the times and activities that make you feel low. This is a clip from a video explaining to trainee workers how to help a patient with depression plan their day and find activities that make them feel better. So shall we start now? Yeah. I would like to ask you how you started your day today. Like when did you get up? Uh, I got up morning at uh, at my usual time at 7. These are simple methods, but they've been shown to be effective in controlled trials. The evidence base for these treatments is weaker for mental health in children and adolescents, and there has been some opposition to the approach. But these schemes have one big advantage in low-resource settings. They're there. It isn't as if there is a choice between this model and, say, a specialist-delivered model. It's usually a choice between this model and either no care at all or a very substandard care uh, delivered in the existing healthcare system. And let's work on this together and hopefully that will help. In this first episode of Grand Challenges, we'll touch on mental health treatments, how to deliver them, and the biggest barriers to helping people find and keep good mental health. I've gathered three experts to guide us through. They've brought some success stories and plenty of ideas about the biggest challenges that remain. This episode was recorded on location at the 2016 Grand Challenges Global Meeting in Westminster, London. With me here in London, I have Dan Chisholm, Health Systems Advisor at the World Health Organization in the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Good evening. Also joining us from the organization Grand Challenges Canada is Ellen Morgan. She's the Program Officer for Global Mental Health. Hi, Ellen. Hello. And from the Ministry of Health in Lebanon, psychiatrist Rabbi El Shameh. He has put in place Lebanon's first mental health program. Rabbi, thanks Hello, for joining Kerry. us. Hello, Kerry. Thank you. Uh, I thought first it might be interesting to define global mental health for those who are just coming across this term for the first time, the kind of conditions maybe it includes and what the global means in this context. Um, Dan, why not start us off? Okay, thank you, Kerry. So I think that for me, the first book that I picked up with the word actually was World Mental Health was in 1995. And this was uh, a very impressive document that uh, set out for me for the first time uh, not only the burden of disease attributable to these disorders, uh, but also some of the key strategies that could be you know, undertaken to close what is a very huge uh, gap, treatment gap, uh, for mental neurological and substance use disorders. So it's, uh, 
It's a, a multidisciplinary uh, field, um, ranging from you know, epidemiology of psychiatric disorders, public health uh, subjects around promotion, uh, preventive um, treatment and rehabilitation sort of services that can be provided, uh, but also including health economic uh, evaluation of different uh, interventions and implementation science, so how to get what we know uh, works into practice. And in terms of what we know of the scale of the challenge, what kind of numbers can you give us? Perhaps, Dan, you're a good person to answer this, for how many people are affected by mental health conditions? Yeah, so um, the, the global estimates that have been generated um, uh, indicate that for common mental disorders, um, there's almost one in ten uh, of the population of the world have a common mental disorder, by which I mean uh, depression uh, and anxiety disorders would be the main form. So, you know, hundreds of millions of people uh, with those disorders, to which one needs to add, of course, uh, people with more severe disorders like bipolar affective disorder, psychotic disorders, um, which adds, you know, tens of millions more. Uh, so the number that, you know, at WHO we, we often use is, is, you know, approaching one in ten of the, of the global population. And, and let's not also forget that uh, a large proportion of the, the world's population are under the age of um, 15, um, and uh, they are also subject to, uh, to disorders. And you only need a relatively small rate of prevalence in that very large population to give rise to very large numbers of children and adolescents who also suffer from developmental and also behavioural disorders. Ellen Morgan, do you, do you find that there are differences in prevalence when you take account of different ways of defining conditions, different cultures might approach things in different ways? Definitely when it comes to sort of different types of mental disorders, they manifest themselves in very different ways and they have different types of cultural, essentially, um, explanations and explanatory models. Um, but there are really, you know, universal components to a number of disorders that also, you know, creates the opportunity to essentially take models and treatment methods that have worked in one place and to adapt them for new contexts. Here I must say that the global mental health have its own instruments and its own uh, tools that can be used. One of them is, for example, WHO Comprehensive uh, Action Plan. It's a frame that helps you think about the problem, the common problems that most populations are suffering with. It does acknowledge that culture has its own impact in manifesting, but also sometimes on the way people perceive stressors they, they, they deal with and whether the stress would lead definitely to a disorder or not. But at least it tells you what has been working. So you're starting from a level of good evidence, we might say, that these interventions are not harmful because we know that in mental health, specifically due to a lot of stigma, a lot of misconception, a lot of mental health uh, disorders are thought to be spirit possessions or curses, etc. And a lot of persons with mental disorders uh, get mistreated uh, because of that and end up being victims of violence. So global mental health presents this framework that's not harmful, that's evidence-based, and that can be adapted to context depending on what's needed. And coming into this framework is uh, evidence from science, from social science. Um, do you guys feel like, is there a good, robust and usable base of evidence within science that you feel like you've got at your fingertips and you can use, or is there really a dearth of information coming through? Dan Chisholm. Um, you know, 20 years ago, we had 
very little evidence about really what worked in low and middle income countries. A lot of the evidence that we had was restricted more to, to high income country settings. That, that has changed uh, and I, I would actually say that global mental health as a field and its emergence uh, in the last 15-20 uh, years has been driven quite heavily by robust evidence for the effectiveness of a range of, of intervention strategies. Maybe the level of evidence that we're talking about is not at the same level of other disciplines, but that does not mean that we don't know what works. And I don't think it's fair in general to ask now mental health to have the same level of evidence that you would expect a treatment for cancer to have. But from an intervention point of view of what works, I think we have enough evidence to, to know what we could do to help with the resources that we have, because also we, in the real world, you cannot just do anything. And maybe just to expand on, on Rabi's point, I think, which is very important, that there are effective interventions that can be implemented, particularly in low-resource contexts, you know, that are very effective. And it's really important because Dan referred, you know, to the global burden, to the impact of mental health worldwide. But in many low- and middle-income countries, the actual the treatment gap, so the difference between the number of people who actually need care and those who are receiving it is 65, 85, sort of approaching 90%. You would echo this kind of good news message, I guess, that you have enough evidence, I suppose, on which to then say, yes, go forth and implement this, this policy. I think Rabbi used the word enough evidence, and I think that's where we're at. We need more evidence, um, particularly for interventions which have a more cultural variation, you know, more psychosocial interventions. And to add on that, also maybe another layer of evidence that we need more is how to implement these interventions, right? We know that these interventions work, but in real life, these interventions cannot be scaled up alone. They need to fit in a system to be sustainable. So how do you get an intervention that works? How do you translate that into adding it to a health system with, with all the challenges of a health system and with the differences between health systems between countries? Ellen Morgan, have you seen programs that were successful in one context fail in another for the reasons that these guys have been elucidating? Yes, I mean, I think that there's, there are examples of things that work well in one context and not in the other. I'd actually like to focus more on um, some that have been successful in actually jumping contexts because I think that's really where we can learn some of the, the key lessons. Um, and a great example is actually if you take cognitive behavioral therapy um, as, as a form of intervention, it's one that has been adapted in multiple contexts, in multiple forms, and sort of brief versions have been created of it. So... Some of, some of the innovations that we fund, for example, there's been the adaptation of cognitive behavioral therapy for use by lay health workers um, in Zimbabwe, for example. And these are essentially mostly 65-year-old women who work in the clinics, um, and they've been trained to actually deliver cognitive behavioral therapy to people who are coming to the clinics. And this task-shifting or task-sort-of-sharing model has actually been replicated in a number of places. So there's a number of countries around the world that are using CBT in different areas. So if you can take these base models and adapt them, and the implementation science is really the key here, you can have very successful models in different parts of the world. Just before we move on from 
my preoccupation with science and evidence. Um, does neuroscience get much of a look in? Um, Rabbi El Chemai, do you feel like it, it's useful to you as a practicing psychiatrist, as someone trying to get policy implemented? I mean, as a disclaimer, I must say I'm not a neuroscientist. Uh, I think the field is fascinating and a lot of uh, interesting uh, discoveries have been happening. Um, there's a lot of talks right now about uh, uh, the brain development in children specifically. I mean, as uh, as you may know, the the brain of a child triples in size between the first day of birth and two years. So there's a lot happening, and this is a big opportunity that we could impact the brain development at that age. And there's another window in the adolescence, and now there's a lot of studies happening around these two periods in particular to see how we could help brains mitigate stress. Now, is neuroscience now ready to give us scalable uh, uh, interventions at global health level? I, I don't know, but what we're finding out in neuroscience actually is that we don't need to be very expert and very on, on the edge of science to really help children. It's coming down really to the basics of what we knew, but I guess this is what science does, right? It, it tells us that what we knew at the beginning was also right. It's, it's the quality of the interaction between the mother and the child and protecting this, and this is something that we know, that we, 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 we foster. But now we have the physical, biological uh, uh, proof of these interventions. So neuroscience can right now at least prove, the, in a way, the biological impact of also psychosocial uh, interventions. And it can help us shape our programs in the future, I think, as well. Let's switch tack a little bit from science and bring in another concept, because this, is, of course, is a very interdisciplinary area. Lots of people with different specialisms need to work together. And one thing that you guys must have to consider, possibly above all else, is how much does this all cost and what do we prioritise? We talked very briefly at the beginning about priorities, but um, I mean, what concepts, Dan Chisholm, would be useful from economics in, in helping us make these really difficult decisions? Yeah, so there's a number of arguments that can be made from the, the health economic argument. So we talk about the burden of disease, which refers to how much of the, the deaths and years of life that are lost and the years spent in, in a state of you know, ill health or disability are attributable to mental disorders. So uh, we can also think of it, um, what is the economic burden or really the economic consequences or impact, not just to the health sector, but to all other sectors of the economy as well. To give an example, we made a, an estimate earlier in the year that the global uh, loss in productivity associated with um, common mental disorders, depression, anxiety disorders, is about one trillion uh, a year. So one trillion with a T dollars. But a, a more commonly que a question from the from the policy side would be, what's it going to cost to to do something about this huge these these consequences? So again, we've done some a number of studies over the years which. Um, have looked into what a package of care would cost to implement in a range of settings, you know, low, middle income, high income uh, settings. For example, for a, a sort of an essential package of care, uh, something like three to four dollars per capita, so per head of population, is what we estimate it would take. So that is, in absolute terms, not, not that great when you look at the investments being made in other fields of health. But it is a big increase on what countries are currently spending. So I think you know, one of the main strategies for funding you know, mental health is through 
integration with uh, other programs. So, for example, the relationship between depression and HIV. So, if you're able to treat the depression that many cases of HIV have, uh, you will actually improve um, adherence to the antiretroviral treatment. So, so there's a kind of a win-win situation there. Uh, also, uh, many countries in the world are currently affected by, by crisis. So again, there is a, a huge opportunity there to intervene and bring mental health services to not only those directly affected by the, the crisis, but also using that opportunity to make better quality services for those with pre-existing conditions. This is your personal experience, Rabbi, of trying to get a system like this going in a middle resource, low resource? How would you characterise it? So it's a low middle income uh, country, but struggling with uh, a quarter of the population composed of Syrian displaced because of the proximity of Lebanon and Syria and the ongoing crisis in Syria. So Lebanon historically had mainly a hospital-based, psychiatric hospital-based system and private system based mainly in the big cities. And the Ministry of Public Health was covering for many years now inpatient care, so hospitalization and psychotropic medication. When the Syrian crisis uh, started and with the influx of Syrian refugees, the Ministry of Public Health uh, uh, took, I think, a very good strategic decision, which is to strengthen the already existing system and to avoid building a parallel system. It's very inclusive of everyone in Lebanon, so it's not only targeting Lebanese. When you talk about a mental health system, we're not only talking about interventions. I know now we've been mainly focusing about interventions, but Dan alluded to the importance of a budget. Uh, You need proper laws in place uh, to protect people with mental disorders. You need to make sure that stigma is addressed, that people are uh, having access to the services that they need. Also, you need to be working on the prevention and promotion. You, You need to make sure that you're collecting the data you need to inform the way you're developing your policy. Mental health in general, global mental health, or even at the country level, is coordination. We cannot stress enough about how difficult but at the same time, how crucial it is to get a really good coordination mechanism. I mean, nonetheless, you've done this remarkably quickly if this was catalyzed by the Syrian crisis. I mean, you haven't had very long and you're already two years into your programme. Did, did you meet much resistance? I must say we were very lucky because uh, the work we were doing was in line with the agenda of all the actors and it was mental health was identified as a need. And in addition to that, it's important when you have in the ministry at the highest level the director general supporting mental health and being an advocate and a champion himself. This makes a big difference. Um, Ellen Morgan, you must find as well that piggybacking on an existing system, a primary care system, something that already exists, is a is a great way of trying to deliver things that actually sustain and, and, and work time after time. Definitely. And I think there's, you know, Dan alluded to the importance of integrating mental health into primary care systems. But there's also a great opportunity that's sort of offered through other delivery systems that have been set up. So example, HIV AIDS. There's a great infrastructure that has actually developed around that, and same even for things like tuberculosis. And it's really important to make sure that sort of mental health interventions can both sort of be included into these types of treatment interventions and also use them as a means of making sure that they get to the populations who who need it the most. Where we see that there's really an important role for innovation in global mental health is 
in the how. So how are these interventions actually delivered in the most effective way for the context? Um, and there's, you know, different examples that Rabbi alluded to in terms of the challenges. So what type of sort of human resources personnel exist? What level of training do they have? Is it an urban population? Is it a rural population? What challenges of distances are there? Dan. So um, Helen was saying, you know, that there are these opportunities for integration, but we can actually need to think outside the health sector entirely. Um, two prominent examples would be, uh, for example, adolescents. Adolescents go to school, and adolescents uh, are vulnerable to a range of risk factors for substance abuse, depression, and, and so on. So um, one of the interventions for which there is good evidence is for socio-emotional learning or life skills programs, which uh, can be delivered within schools by teachers or other, other persons. And this, this has good evidence of effectiveness. And, and of course, an, another one would be workplaces. Um, we all, you know, we go to work and uh, a lot of people suffer stress uh, in the workplace. And there's obviously consequences for not only the individual, but also the, the employers as a result of that. So here, I think that there is a strong, you know, there ought to be a strong incentive, you know, certainly for, for, for profit uh, corporations and, and employers. You guys have convinced me that there's enough evidence that some programs are very successful in dealing with mental health and that it's really beneficial, obviously, to people's well-being, but also economically for countries and, and organisations to deal with this. So why don't we see it everywhere? Why is this a challenge at all? I think there's one word which sums that up. Stigma mm. is still the number one problem because it affects everything. I mean, it, it affects the prioritization of um, you know, policies, the allocation of resources. It affects all these, these health system aspects which uh, Rabbi was, 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 was talking about. So whilst there have been, uh, in, in many countries, uh, good, you know, strong efforts to introduce uh, awareness campaigns, including here in the UK, for example, there still is obviously a large stigma attached, and I think that does uh, still present, you know, the, the, the number one obstacle. And what's, what amazes me is that we live in a, in a time where well-being and happiness are regarded as a high value that we need to pursue. So this is what societies and individuals are encouraged to pursue. And yet, when we talk about mental health, people think that we're only talking about mental disorders. Uh, mental health concerns each and every one of us. Stigma is definitely a big uh, uh, issue and this is also related to misconception about mental health. One of them is that people with mental disorders will never recover. Mental disorders are chronic. Mental disorders are genetic and hereditary in, in nature. None of these are founded, but yet this is what we find in societies. And just to add to that, I mean, mental health is, you know, a really important outcome in its own right, but it's also an incredibly important input. So Dan mentioned the sustainable development goals. In order for us as a global community to achieve those, the needs of people living with mental illness, their caregivers, and the general well-being of the population needs to be addressed and it needs to be at the centre of many of these efforts. Would you agree that stigma is, I mean, it, when I first asked the question and Dan leapt in, you, you made a noise that made me sense that you agreed with him that stigma is perhaps one of the biggest challenges here. Definitely. And you had asked earlier about, you know, why some interventions may fail. And 
you know, stigma can be a really, if it's unaddressed, it can be a really important contributing sort of factor to why an intervention that could have a fantastic scientific basis doesn't ever get off the ground. So if nobody, if nobody shows up, if no one is willing to engage in treatment, it's impossible to move forward. And something that is, I think, really important to reflect upon is that, as Dan said, it permeates all levels of society, but in, including healthcare workers themselves. So maybe this is the same answer for this next question, but what would be the one thing that perhaps you would try to change or what would help most? We can turn this into a hypothetical game, if you like. Nature's budgets are not this big, but um, if I was to give you a million pounds, what would you do with it in order to try and, and further our goal of, um, of having everyone be mentally well? Rabbi, would you like to go first? Well, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a big question. I think this, this points out one, one issue that at the global level we're struggling with as a community. Uh, uh, for example, just to take an example, uh, for HIV-AIDS, uh, the, the big movement and the way it was successful is that, that everyone concerned had the same one message, was we need medication. At the global level in mental health, I think we, we agree on the big lines, but when it comes to implementation or what we think we should be starting, we're not in total agreement about what should be done. So if I had the million pounds, I would continue implementing the strategy I have in Lebanon with a big focus on service development. Dan Chisholm, <laughs> a million may not be remotely enough, but exactly. anyway, drop that in the ocean. That would be my, my exactly what I would say, that <laughs> a million is a very small drop in a very large ocean. Um, I think the, you know, we talked earlier about the treatment gap, but if we, put, if we talk about the funding gap, um, just in low-income countries, it's probably around a billion dollars uh, a year. You know, and that, I'm not talking about middle-income countries where you know the the needs would be would be even greater. I think I have two things I would say. One is that um, I would put the money more towards the actual uh, on-the-ground development of services, as opposed to, for example, funding more research on you know the prevalence of disorders or whatever. I think we have, a, as we were talking, you know. Uh, we have enough evidence to, 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 to enable us to go ahead and implement. So I would push that. But if I had a million pounds, I would, I think, be much more inclined to give it to uh, service users and family organisations because, you know, we haven't talked about that. Mm -hmm. And they are a vital part uh, of, of, the, of, the, uh, the, uh, of, of the picture uh, and actually need um, uh, to be... Uh, involved uh, in, in, in all of these discussions around, you know, service planning um, and what are the appropriate um, services that they would like. For Ellen, of course, this is sort of a little bit more like your day job than, <laughs> than for the others. <laughs> yes, indeed, although our budget is, is not that big. But, I, you know, I would, I'll take it anyway. Um, so I, I would very much agree um, with both Dan and Rabbi, I think, we really need to invest in scaling up interventions that are successful. Um, and we also need to really make sure that we evaluate them to make sure that we can take the lessons learned and apply them in other contexts um, just as successfully. There are fantastic ideas, there's fantastic interventions that are happening around the world. And I think we really just need to make sure that what is happening is essentially getting to those who make the decisions for resource allocation. Um, 
mental health is sometimes seen as this intractable, heterogeneous problem that has no end and is just a bucket you can sort of keep pouring resources into. But I think that's in some ways the overarching stigma that we need to combat. Grand ambitions, grand dreams um, for a grand challenge. Thank you all for joining me. Dan Chisholm from the WHO, Ellen Morgan of Grand Challenges Canada and Rabbi El Shameh of the Ministry of Health in Lebanon. Thank you all.